are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Hello, welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so excited today. We have Dr. Elizabeth Howell from the University of Utah. She is here to talk to us today about cannabis, and she is a national expert about all things cannabis. It's going to be an awesome episode. Before we get started, I just want to thank everyone who has gone on and given us reviews. We appreciate the feedback, and we really appreciate your support. So thank you. Paula is going to introduce Dr. Howell for us. Great. Yeah, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Howell. I claim her as my own because she has been my mentor throughout my medical career as my addiction specialist and teacher. Dr. Howell is dear to my heart. She is an incredible reservoir of wisdom, knowledge, and all things addiction. She is someone who has influenced many people, both on a patient level and on a learner level. And she continues to advance the field of addiction psychiatry and addiction medicine in many ways. So I'm going to read her formal bio. And I'm excited that those listening to the podcast will have the opportunity to listen to Dr. Howell's wisdom in not only this episode, but in the next episode of Cannabis that we will be dropping as well. And I'm hoping that we'll get her back on the podcast soon for another topic because she really does know everything. So Elizabeth Howell, MD, has worked in the addiction field since 1983 in public, private, and academic settings. Since 2005, she's been an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Utah School of Medicine in Salt Lake City, Utah, with an inpatient and outpatient clinical practice at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute, which was formerly University Neuropsychiatric Institute. Dr. Howell is board certified in psychiatry and addiction psychiatry by the American Board of of Psychiatry and Neurology, and in Addiction Medicine by the American Board of Preventative Medicine. She's a Distinguished Fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine and a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatrics Association. She developed and is, and is the Training Director for the Addiction Psychiatry and the Addiction Medicine ACGME Accredited Fellowship Programs at the University of Utah School of Medicine. And I just want to put a shout out to Dr. Howell for both of these fellowship programs, which she has up and running, and they are fantastic ways to further your education. If you are a resident right now in any specialty and psychiatry, you can apply to be a fellow under Dr. Howell's uh, tutelage. Dr. Howell has been involved in addiction policy and advocacy at a national level for many years. She has been actively involved in the American Society of Addiction Medicine since the mid-1980s. And ring the bell, she was president of ASAM from 2005 and 2007. She was recognized with the ASAM Annual Award in 2012, which for those of us who don't know, is a really big deal. She has also served on the initial board of the American Board of Addiction Medicine from 2007 and 2011, and she was appointed by the Utah governor to two four-year terms on the Utah Physician Licensing Board and served as chairperson of the licensing board from 2010 to 2014. She was a member of the National Advisory Council on Drug Abuse for the National Institute of Health from 2011 to 2014, and a member of the National Advisory Council of the Center of Substance Abuse Treatment, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, otherwise known as SAMHSA, from 2007 to 2012, 
And on top of all of this, Dr. Howell was president of the Utah Medical Association here in Utah uh, from 2017 and 2018. Basically, Dr. Howell knows everybody. Every time I meet someone in the addiction um, or the addiction psychiatry field, they sure enough know Dr. Beth Howell. So we're very lucky to have her here today. She's a wealth of knowledge and um, I'm grateful for everything she's done for the field and for me personally. Take it away, Dr. Howell. Well, so hopefully what we're going to talk about tonight, starting some with epidemiology, also then moving on to some of the different features of the cannabis that's being used now in the United States, especially, and a little bit about the phytobiology, I guess, of the plant and the the synthetic cannabinoids, some of what it does in the brain some of the risks and benefits, um, because what most people have heard lately is, oh, cannabis, it's, it's the cure for everything. It's safe. It's wonderful. You know, everybody should use it. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, cannabis is really the most commonly used illegal, at least in some areas, substance in the U.S. and in the world. And in the United States, the lifetime prevalence of its uh, use is about 42 to 46% of people will have used cannabis in the U.S. That, now, that, Beth, that's kind of yeah. shocking to me that that's so high. Yeah. 42 to 46% lifetime prevalence in I know. the U.S. And it's, do you know, has that been stable over the past couple of decades or is that trending upwards? Sorry, you may you may be just about to say this, but I, I'm interested in that statistic. Some of it's trending upward. It depends on the age group. The highest use is in the folks that are like 18 to 25. You know, the 42 to 46% is, an, is obviously an average of many different age groups. And, and so the peak is really in the in those folks who are in their late teens, early 20s. But yeah, it is it is pretty high, so to speak. <laughs> you know, that's but, not a pun or anything. No, it's not a pun <laughs> or anything. But you know, we have a lot of use in our country. And um, it far outstrips any of the other illicit drug use, like using opioids, prescribed opioids, sedatives, tranquilizer, stimulants, cocaine, hallucinogens, inhalants, methamphetamine, and heroin. It, it's much higher than, than any of those others, the percentage of people who are using and the numbers of people who are using the, the cannabis. Well, and I think along that lines, like Paula, you bring that up, is I think the most recent, the Monitoring the Future survey reported that it initially among teens, correct, Beth, it was decreasing until 2019. Mm-hmm. With all these changes in state legislation, it's now a significant increase. Correct? Yeah, I, I believe you're right about that. I haven't looked at that one recently, but that but one of the things that has been noticed over time is that the greatest increases in use are occurring, and also in cannabis use disorder, are occurring in states that have medical marijuana. Wana laws in the United States. So, you know, yeah, there, I think there there was some initial decrease. These things go up and they go down. And, and so the, the, the trend, I'm afraid, is going to be going up. And what's really more striking, actually, than the use is the, the perceived harm of the cannabis is yes. going way down. Fewer and fewer people are, are feeling as if it's it's harmful and that's concerning because you know there're plenty of people who can use without problems but there're also plenty of people who use and have problems with it just like with alcohol tobacco obviously can cause 
health problems too. It's, it's interesting. I was I was looking at some of the worldwide trends, which I find interesting, and it, it looks like the highest the countries with the highest use of cannabis in the in the world are the United States and Canada, Iceland, Spain, Australia, New Zealand, and a few other countries um, in Africa and off the coast of Africa. And so it's um, it's really more of a Western phenomenon. There is a, a good bit of use in other countries, but we're the highest use in the, in the whole world of those countries that I just named. That is so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. We, we're probably, we're also the highest for most other substances too. Yeah, right. It's interesting that ne- the Netherlands is not on that uh, list, I considering know. its history with uh, legalized cannabis. I think they're in there somewhere. Yeah, you know, the number of states that have some sort of cannabis program is going up really every legislative session. Um, there's a map that's that's maintained on the um, National Council of State Legislatures, and you can look on that and see which states have cannabis programs and where they're at. There's all the way from the, the states that have adult and medical use programs that are regulated all the way to no public access. But more and more of the states on this cannabis state cannabis program map are turning green where there are laws that are being passed every legislative session. And, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because I, I think that this is a, it's an effort that's been going on for many years to uh, legalize cannabis in the United States. Canada has also, has done it recently. And yet you can't say, you can't compare apples to apples because every country, every state, they all have different programs and, and you have to check out and see what's going on in your own state in your own country. You know, within my lifetime, it's gone from something that was a popular drug in the 60s, and then it kind of went down in popularity, and then it has become something that is just accepted. And that over the last, I'd say, five years, even in Utah, people who you would not expect who are in their 60s and 70s, or they're very religious or whatever, are asking about cannabis, or they're using some form of it. And because Say, for example, in Utah, we have states around us who have more liberal laws with cannabis than many patients will go to Colorado or Nevada or wherever and and pick up different products and bring them back, which is, of course, not legal, but that isn't stopping anybody from doing it. And and so more and more, I have patients who are using uh, cannabis than I ever had before. Really, that's been my experience. I don't know what you guys have seen. But. Yeah, we're seeing that. I mean, I, I'll speak for myself, but we're seeing the same thing where it's just global. It's just on every urine drug screen. And patients don't even bother to really report it now when you do a history or mm-hmm. when you check in with them on a follow-up visit on whether they're using or have returned to use. They mm-hmm. may say yes or no. And when you ask them specifically about cannabis, they look kind of surprised like, oh. Doesn't well, everybody? <laughs> exactly. Or they say, I have a cannabis, I have yes. a medical card. And so why would you ask me that? Mm-hmm. You know, and Darlene and I have our rant sessions about that, I'd say almost daily. Yeah, right. Well, and, you know, I hear all this stuff like, oh, it's natural and 
it's got it's safe because it's it's an herb it's natural and all this kind of stuff and it, those of us in a medical profession know that there are plenty of plants and herbs that are very dangerous and can kill people it, to me that doesn't mean much of anything but there's this idea now that cannabis products are a panacea they they will do anything and everything and that we in the medical profession are denying people the miraculous properties of this drug but really you know i've been around a long time i don't know of anything that is a panacea none of our prescription drugs uh no natural medicines or herbal medicines or anything like that i mean everything has its place and its purpose and but we're becoming a very kind of stoned country in my opinion. And we've we've kind of gone, you know, people would go to breweries or wineries, distilleries, and now they go to dispensaries and growers. And you can go to, say, Washington State and pick up a cannabis tourism map that will take you to different growers and dispensaries around the state. And so it's big business. And also the other thing is that there's a lot of money in uh, the cannabis business and big companies such as the tobacco companies have not ignored this. They've gotten involved. And so it's not really the mom and pop growers or shops or anything like that. It's not kind of the street sort of small businesses that are involved. It's, It's turning into a huge business. It's sort of the marijuana industrial complex it's, it's what it's going to be and already is in some. some I areas. love that you bring that up, Beth. I recently read this article that talked about, you know, nicotine and how, and we're almost seeing a parallel yeah. of that with cannabis. This was like the 1980s when really the FDA was still at that time trying to get nicotine labeled as an addictive substance. And so it, it seems so like foreign to us that what do you mean that the FDA wouldn't label this as an addictive substance, but we are doing this battle and you had big tobacco at that time. What they were doing is they were saying, well, we're making these cigarettes low tar, but massively increasing the amount of nicotine in them to make them more addictive. And we're seeing the same issue with cannabis products right Right. now, because the amount of the psychoactive substance of the THC in that is you're seeing amounts of 35%, 45%. And that's what you're just talking right. about is this industrialization of this mm-hmm. to maximal product to get to hook people and get them in. And it's yeah. and like I said, it's, it's money. It's really money. They just see a way to profit. Yeah, and it's the whole thing about quote unquote medical cannabis is a misnomer. There is really no meaning to that term. Everybody has a different idea of what it means. The way that medicine has been sort of co-opted into this, often not by us being interested in, in getting involved, but by state legislatures saying, if you want to use these products, then you have to get a card and you have to see a medical provider who tells us that you can have these products, etc. And none of us really were, were trained in how to treat people with cannabis because it was not considered to be a medical agent. We're being asked to do all these things that we weren't trained to do. And thinking back about these these old ads, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette, things like that, where the medical profession was co-opted into yes. giving these endorsements of smoking and famous 
actors and actresses would say, you know, there's scientific evidence on effects of smoking that were positive back in the day. And then, and so a lot of people I know in the addiction field are saying, well, it, it looks like this wave of cannabis laws is coming. You can't, it's a tsunami. We can't do anything about it, but give it about 50 years and we'll be looking back like we did with smoking going, what were we thinking? Because of a lot of what you're talking about, Darlene, that there's a high potency. It's not It's not your mother's or grandmother's or grandfather's marijuana that people are using these days. It's much more potent and we really don't have any research to speak of on the products that are being used by the public today, at least in the United States, we don't. So let's talk about what this thing is. You know, what is cannabis? Why do people want to use it? Like they're different cannabinoids. And, and to start with, we have endocannabinoids in our brain. We have these homegrown in our brain cannabinoids that are endogenous chemicals that interact with the cannabinoid receptors in the system in our bodies. And so the system is really important. It's evolutionarily been there for a long time, so it's got to be important. Then we also have phytocannabinoids, which are the ones that are derived from the plant, the, the cannabis plant. And then there's these synthetic cannabinoids that are derived basically from just synthesized in a lab, but they affect the cannabinoid receptors. And the really scary thing about the synthetic cannabinoids is that most of them have never been tested even in animals, much less humans. And we have no idea what effects that they can have long-term. The different ones are being synthesized at all times. They are being developed continually because as states uh, see that these synthetic cannabinoids are becoming a problem, they will make them illegal in that state. And then people will, they're in the business, will go and they'll synthesize a new product that's not illegal. And, and you get further and further away from the original compound, more and more problems can ensue. You know, if you if you could make a synthetic cannabinoid that would mimic the plant cannabinoids, but wouldn't have any like psychoactivity, meaning causing psychosis or causing brain uh, changes that are that are unwanted, basically, then it would be okay. But most of the synthetic cannabinoids can be quite dangerous, cause, cause psychosis and other psychiatric and medical problems too. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to just agree with that clinically. I, I'm now working with a population that really like to use synthetic cannabinoids. Must be something to do with access and price and maybe also being involved with probation and parole and not wanting to test positive for, right. for cannabis proper. And it's really incredible to hear the reports of the effects of synthetic cannabinoids. Quite frightening and very dangerous. And I don't know if you heard, there was, a ca there was some cases in Illinois with um, spontaneous bleeding from, mm. from spice or from synthetic cannabis recently. And the CDC put out a warning saying mm -hmm. that there was basically spontaneous, I don't know if it was ITP that it was causing, spontaneous catastrophic bleeding events from a batch yeah. of spice that was distributed in Illinois. Yeah. And once again, you know, we have no idea. They would have to test that to see what it was. And none of these will show up on a regular drug screen. They'll just, they're hitting that receptor, but they're not going to trigger a positive on a drug screen. And 
you have to have a specific test for each specific synthetic cannabinoid, and that can get quite expensive. So generally, the testing is only done in state labs or for research purposes or something like that. 90% of the time, we have no clue what somebody is using when they're using quote unquote spice, which is a, a term that's used for synthetic cannabinoids. Let me talk a little bit about what this plant is. So let's start with the actual plant. And the main plant is cannabis sativa, which was which originated in Central Asia, likely in the Himalayas. It didn't really appear in the Western Hemisphere until about the 16th century. There are historical evidence that it was used, you know, much before that in the other parts of the world. And it's a really interesting plant. There are several different names of species, which may or may not actually be any separate species. They, they may all be one. There's a lot of controversy about that, but there's cannabis sativa, indica, ruderalis, and afghanica. Patients will tell me, oh, I use indica for this and sativa for that, but there's really not a whole lot of evidence that there are they're different species. What we do know, though, is that there are over 60 cannabinoids in the plant that have been identified, and over 500 chemical compounds that are not cannabinoids. So it's a really complicated plant. Some of the plants are THC predominant, and THC is tetrahydrocannabinol, and some are CBD predominant. I'll talk a little bit about those in a minute. And then some are mixed. If you have a plant that has less than 0.3% THC and has very high CBD, then it can be known as hemp. Hemp has been used in making rope and a lot of other industrial uses all over the world. It was illegal for a while in the United States and recently is now legal again to grow hemp. There are some interesting aspects to that because there are some other psychoactive cannabinoids that may be in hemp. Pretty complicated thing just to know about the sort of the botany and the phytobiology of, of all these chemicals that are in the plant naturally. It's fascinating. It's probably the most complicated of any of the drugs of addiction, if I look at the sort of pathways of formation and breakdown of different cannabinoids, it's probably the most complicated thing out there that I've seen ever. So we don't know, we're not ever really comparing apples to apples when we're talking about cannabis products. And they come in a lot of different preparations. So there, people think about the actual, the plant, the marijuana, as it's called. It's the dried plant and it's the leaves, stems, flowers, and usually you smoke it or vaporize it somehow. And then there are concentrations of THC or the cannabis components. Um, these can be concentrated and formed into different things such as uh, resins or liquids or oils or even sort of waxy material that is, is very hard and kind of looks like hard candy. And so there's a bunch of different ways that it can be used and, and different formulations have different concentrations of the, the THC. Why is everybody so focused on cannabinoids. Well, you know, I said they're endogenous cannabinoids. So our brain is already primed to respond to these kind of chemicals. And we have several that we make in our own brains. One is anandamide and one is 2-AG. And they both have longer names, but I'm not going to bore you with those. And then there's at least three or four others that are studied somewhat. And the main thing that happens with all of these cannabinoids is that they act on the cannabinoid receptors 
cultures, generally CB1 or CB2, and not just the endogenous cannabinoids, but also the ones that come from the plants are synthesizing them. The CB1 receptor is super widely distributed. So if you've ever seen any of these pictures of brains with nice red or green or whatever kind of um, lighting up, that the most widely spread kind of receptor in our brains is probably, at least the one that's involved with potential addiction, would be the CB1 receptor. It's so widely distributed that if you go back and kind of look at where it is, you can see some of the effects of the cannabis. So like if you think of what do, you, what do you think of when people are are using that they may have altered consciousness or you've heard about the munchies, which is increased appetite, slowed reaction time. You can trace those actions back to the manifestations of the THC activity on the CB1 receptors in different parts of the brain. So the cerebral cortex alters consciousness if it's affected. The hypothalamus is affected and increases appetite. And the brainstem um, can cause that effect of, of decreased nausea. Um, the basal ganglia can, it, when they're affected, slowed reaction time, et cetera, et cetera. Also, the effects of THC and, and other cannabinoids on CB1 receptors in the spinal cord might be the way that, that THC alters pain sensitivity, which is another thing that people talk a lot about. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is that there's a heterogeneity into the um, reactions of people when they use cannabis. And, and so many people say, oh, I feel so much less anxious. I've, I'm mellow and all that. But other people will react with increased anxiety and panic and feeling paranoid. And so there's a variety of reactions that you can have depending on the person. And even sometimes I'll, I've had patients who say, well, you know, I used it for years and suddenly one day it started making me paranoid. We don't fully understand that process, but it does happen. Do we have a certain kind of person that that happens to, or is it random? Is it dose dependent? Is it familial? Do we know anything about that effect? I don't really know. It's, those are all really good questions. A lot of times, unlike, say, alcohol, which a lot of people feel okay about using, somebody might have this reaction, but no one in their family has used marijuana and has the same, you know, so they don't know if they have the same reaction. We also, so we don't know why some people have those different reactions. It's probably a genetic difference, but we just don't know what the genetic difference is. Hasn't been well studied as far as I know. And it, it doesn't really seem to be related to amount because Sometimes when people have this reaction, they say, well, I'm just going to use a little bit, but it doesn't seem to make that much difference. It's just one of those kind of interesting things yeah. that, that, that we and it's, see. So it's risky, really, isn't it? Because you can't really, pro people can't profile themselves into a risk category. Not that most users do. Right. They're using to have a positive effect, however, and so people don't think, oh, man, this may not be kind of, this may not be the best for me. Right. What I see often too, and maybe you can speak to this or you're going to, is the effect that people have initially with cannabis changes over time as they use it. So what used to be anxiolytic becomes quite anxiety provoking and right. even they, people develop paranoia. Mm -hmm. And I talk to patients about it being a potency effect or just time on the brain, but what, how do you perceive that and how do you guide your patients and teach your fellows? Frequently I see yeah. that. And it's really hard. I don't, they're not recognizing mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And I, well, 
you know, when did you start using and how did it affect you, et cetera, et cetera, what was going on in your life when you started using. A lot of times I'll hear that marijuana use starts when they're young, you know, often after a trauma. That's a very common trigger for people to start using any drug. But but often cannabis is a is an early drug that people use. Tobacco, cannabis, and alcohol seem to be the first ones that people use. And I, I'm not so sure about it being a gateway drug. It just happens to be the first one that they use. And often that's related to what's around and what they can access as a young child or teenager. I, I like to find out what was their reaction when they first used it? And then how's that gone through the years? Because if someone says, yeah, I used it for a while and then I stopped, a lot of times they've had some kind of adverse reaction to it. And, it, and often the most common adverse reaction is this anxiety producing episode. And I find there's also a small group of people who have that just initially on like yes. on first use. That exactly. very first time they tried it, they're like, oh no, I hated it. It made me feel terrible. And I guess that's exactly. true for all substances, including any kind of chemical, whether it's prescribed, mm -hmm. illicit, you know, yeah. tobacco, alcohol, even some people just whatever your brain is, whatever your makeup is, some of us like it and some of us don't. Yeah. And our response to it determines future use. Yeah, I've heard that with alcohol too, that, oh gosh, it made me feel really super depressed. I never wanted to touch it again or something like that. So it's very individual. And it's just like with opioids, how certain opioids will cause more euphoria for someone and they'll become addicted to one over another. Other, but they may love hydrocodone and oxycodone doesn't do anything to them that triggers a lot of their craving. And, and we don't really fully understand that because you would think that the difference in different opioid receptors is so minor that you wouldn't think that that one drug could make that much difference to your brain or have that cause that many different reactions. But it can it's always important to find out how people respond to, to different drugs because I'm, I'm often surprised. Never so, a dull moment. In this no, field. It, That's no. why we're in it, right? Exactly. <laughs> so the things I'm going to talk about a little bit more, talk a little bit about THC and cannabidiol, because those are really the two that most people focus on. THC is delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. There are some delta-8 THCs that are being used more commonly recently because it's not specifically named in some laws. It is a loophole that people are, are getting by on is one of the reasons it's kind of a tricky thing to put every single chemical in a law that you want to limit access to because nature is very devious and people who synthesize drugs are very inventive and um, there's always going to be something that you haven't anticipated. But at any rate, Delta 9 THC is the primary compound that produces the high in uh, cannabis and it acts on the CB1 receptor and like we just talked about, it can cause anxiety too. Cannabidiol is not intoxicating. It has very different effects. So it has anti-anxiety, anti-psychotic, antidepressant, anti anti-seizure and analgesic or pain relieving effects. Those are really the two main ones we're going to talk about. But, you know, if I talk about Delta 9 THC, you can assume that what I'm saying about it probably applies to a lot of the other components of cannabis that are intoxicating, whether or not I'm going to name them specifically. And one of the things like you were mentioning about the anxiety, maybe the marijuana that they used had 
more THC than cannabidiol because when you have a mixture of the two, the cannabidiol can kind of counteract some of the negative um, side effects of the THC. So we, we just don't know because we, we don't know what people are using when they have these, these reactions. If anybody's interested, there was a, in 2017, there was a whole publication about the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And you can actually download the whole thing from the internet if you're interested in looking at that. Just to summarize a little bit, they, they looked at both the evidence for the therapeutic benefits of cannabis, and they looked at the evidence for risks of using it. And there's not a whole lot of evidence, even several years later now, for the therapeutic benefits of, of cannabis. And this is not reflected in what's been passed in state law. So if you look at your state law and it says you can use medical cannabis for whatever, it doesn't mean there's a lot of evidence there. That was a political decision, whatever your state did. It was not a scientific decision. There's conclusive or substantial evidence that cannabis can reduce chronic pain. It can work as an anti-emetic for chemo-induced, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and it can reduce spasticity and multiple sclerosis. Moderate evidence. And Dr. How was this, when they're saying chronic pain, this was, was this neuropathic yes. pain specifically? And that was one of the things that is um, was clarified later after this was published, because everybody assumed it meant any kind of chronic pain, but it's actually neuropathic pain. So you're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, certainly the studies that have come out later that's what it's what it has supported but it's like you said that's not what the legislation says at all right. there's been this complete like disconnect that we're yeah, seeing yeah and actually if you look at the um, highlights of the national academy's report it says in adults with chronic pain patients who were treated with cannabis or cannabinoids are more likely to experience a clinically significant reduction in pain symptoms it did not specify that it was neuropathic pain but there there have been some studies since then that have really clarified that it's the neuropathic pain people are using it for all sorts of pain which it may or may not have really any beneficial effect for and there's some moderate evidence for um, helping with short-term sleep and obstructive sleep apnea and may help a little bit with fibromyalgia, chronic pain in general, and multiple sclerosis, but and le really limited evidence for some other things. Um, one of the things that gets added into legislation a lot of times is treatment for Tourette's syndrome, and that's very limited evidence that it's effective for that. There's no or was and is still no insufficient or insufficient evidence for a lot of other things. Epilepsy, you know, we'll talk a little bit about cannabidiol in a, in a minute, but abstinence from addictive substances, schizophrenia, Which is really interesting because when you are talking to proponents of medical marijuana, mm -hmm. they often cite these reasons so passionately. Right. You know, I was just in a meeting with some very kind of important people. And there was this passionate discussion about kind of how dare we withhold medical marijuana for these poor people who have uncontrolled epilepsy. Right. And it's frustrating because I think maybe a lot of people actually believe that's true. Yeah. Where there really just isn't the evidence to support that. There are some evidence to support the use of, you know, certain compounds in certain kind of seizure disorders in children, but not right. globally for exactly. adults. But it's it's interesting. I think this all ties back to big money, mm -hmm. you know, purporting 
big ideas that are not necessarily scientifically based. And it's hard to know what's true. And the medical community, we struggle yeah. to know what's what's real and what's not. So Yeah. And I tell people who are big proponents, I'm like, listen, if this was the miracle cure for everything, I would be great with it. But that's there are a lot of things that have come out in medicine through the years where we've been fooled by kind of basically snake oil sales. There are things that are purported to be wonderful cures, whether they're, they could be medications, they could be pharmaceutical products, but nothing that I know of is a miracle for anything. And, you know, it life is not that simple. Part of the movement is to sell people on this idea that there's this wonderful compound, this wonderful plant that, you know, medicine is so threatened by this that we're going to try to keep it from people. And I'm like, well, listen, if it's helpful, great. But problem is that get this list of associated risks and, you know, there's substantial evidence for medical and mental health risks of cannabis use, significant risk of increasing the risk of schizophrenia or psychosis, especially when in people who are high dose frequent users, there's impairment in learning, memory, and attention. So I mean, that increased schizophrenia risk that you bring up, that's five to seven times right. increased. But I mean, that's huge. Right. Yeah. And there have been some studies done just looking at like Swedish conscripts into the military back in the early 80s or wherever, whenever that study was done. And, you know, of course, the cannabis was much less potent back then. Yeah, the risk was increased just in this sort of naturalistic study looking at conscripts that they weren't studying anything else. They just, they looked at who was using and then they looked at outcomes later on. And, and European countries can do a lot better job of that because they unified medical records than we can in the States with our fragmented system. One of the more recent studies done in multiple sites around the, the world uh, showed, especially with higher potency cannabis, that the risk was seven times as much, like you said. And it's really hard because when the, the messaging is, oh, this is a plant, it's an herb, it's, it's wonderful, everybody should be able to use it. It gets tricky because then somebody with schizophrenia says, well, what's wrong with it? I mean, friends use it and they don't have any problems. And, and so my job to hopefully try to convince somebody to give it a try to come off of it for a while to see if your mental illness improves. It's a really hard sell. I like that suggestion though, to just kind of use some gentle, like open-ended, like, well, why don't we just see how you feel mm -hmm. off of it? Presenting to, for some kind of assistance, right? If they're seeing you, you're an addiction psychiatrist. If they're seeing us, we're substance use, we're addiction family medicine doctors, but this idea of like, Instead of forbidding it or saying you can never take it, just saying, well, I wonder what life would be like if you didn't smoke or mm -hmm. use edibles. Would you feel any different? Yeah. And a lot of times people don't think they can live without it. And then they end up reporting that they really do feel better mm -hmm. off of it because the initial effects don't last much like many drugs of abuse because of tolerance and withdrawal. Yeah. And there, there is really good evidence that use of cannabis is associated with more respiratory symptoms and chronic bronchitis, lower birth weight and offspring, and also motor vehicle crashes. So that's really pretty clear. And then I worry a lot about use of cannabis and the way that it's being touted for medical reasons, especially with 
psychiatric patients or people who have psychiatric problems or illnesses. There's really not any strong evidence that it's helpful with psychiatric disorders. The evidence that's being batted around is, is pretty modest or equivocal and clear evidence that it's harmful for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. You know, people with bipolar disorder, for example, it may increase their risk of psychosis, just like with any any other psychotic illness, but also their risk of hospitalization and destabilization of their illness. And it's extremely difficult to convince people of that. It's, it's like if someone tells me, you know, I drink alcohol because I have panic attacks and it really, really helps my anxiety. Well, yeah, in the short run, it does. And I'm sure that people with any illness, bipolar, schizophrenia, whatever, they probably feel better initially, but in the long run, it, it's very destabilizing. It's hard to explain that to people and, and have them right. listen to it. And uh, there's increasing evidence too surrounding suicidality and self-harm in adolescents who use right cannabis too yeah clearly one of the problems that we face is that we don't know what people are using there's no quality control <laughs> i don't care how many pretty pictures of percentages of thc and cbd people uh, put on their website or wherever it who knows if they're if they're really giving it to you accurately right it, it looks nice but you can say whatever you want to if nobody's looking over your shoulder. And and like you had mentioned earlier, Darlene, they're these strains that have really high THC and they get, they're genetically modified. And so, and they're bred really to have high THC content. No U.S. research that's been done on these high THC products, because if you aren't aware, the only THC research, only cannabis research that can be done in this country has to be done on product that is developed in, I think, two different locations. One of them is the University of Mississippi. They grow it there. If you've ever seen a picture of what they send to the researchers, it is so clearly poor quality uh, cannabis related to the things that you can buy at a dispensary or wherever. And I think the maximum percentage of THC that you can get from there is 8%. And that's certainly not 35 to 45% or whatever is being used by, by some people using the high dose compounds. I guess if you looked at average THC content or concentration, uh, this is from specimens collected by the DEA. From 1995, the average was about 4% THC. And by 2014, it was up to about 12%. So it had tripled um, nearly 20 year time period. And it's, I'm, and I'm sure it's probably higher at this point. The other thing is that there's not any commensurate increase in CBD. So it's really a THC predominant specimen that they're collecting. You know, the DEA is, is confiscating. If we just look at the, we call them the ditch weed, you know, the, the marijuana that would just grow out in the wild, um, that probably has about a THC content of one to five percent. You know, there's a lot of hybrid strains that have been developed and, you know, they have these really colorful names like King Tut and Blissful Wizard and yada yada. And their THC content is 35 to over 50 percent, some of them. The unfertilized flowers are 7 to 15 percent THC. Hashish or resin is 20 10 to 20 percent. Hash oil is 20 to 60 percent and dab, shatter, or wax is like 80 to 90 percent THC. So some of those formulations that I talked about earlier can be up to 90 percent THC. So they're very 
potent. These drugs, just like every other drug, you know, you can use them in a variety of ways. You can smoke them, vaporize them, you can eat them or ingest them, or you can use them topically. Most of the time they're being smoked or, or vaporized because you can get a much higher concentration faster when you smoke or absorb something from your lungs. And different forms have different amounts of THC. So, you know, if you smoke cannabis, you probably get about two milligrams. If you use a retail edible, it's about 10 milligrams. So a retail edible, then you can always look at the concentration. Of course, you don't know what you're getting. Really, it's about five five joints or five doses of smoking cannabis. Medical edibles can contain as much as 100 milligrams of THC. That's a lot. And I think that's interesting because edibles seem so benign, Mm -hmm. especially to people who wouldn't otherwise smoke a substance. So I think that's pretty common in Utah. People try to avoid smoking things and they, but they're They'll uh, eat them. Okay with taking, eating. Yeah. Eating. (laughs) We like to eat everything in Utah. Yes. But, um, that's I, it's amazing how potent that the edi- at edibles are, and I think we've had a couple of interesting cases. I remember we had an interesting inpatient case at the hospital with the mm-hmm. older gentleman who took some even one or two edibles for pain and ended up kind of floridly psychotic, mm-hmm. and likely because of this very reason, it was very very potent, and he had never tried anything like this before. He was pretty naive. Right. Yeah. And, and you don't know, like if you look and you, it says, oh, 10 milligrams, that doesn't seem like a whole lot or a hundred. I mean, we don't have any frame of reference. And, and then in medicine, we don't learn about these things. So we don't even know what, really what to advise people. If they're going to go out and buy it and they say, how much should I use? And you're like, I don't know. And sometimes the, you know, the concentrates and the tinctures, you really have to look and see how much THC is supposed to be in each milliliter or whatever the dose is, because it can really vary. There are some pharmaceutical grade cannabinoids. And so it's not like these haven't been available to people. They're pretty expensive and they're limited in what it can be approved for. But we've got dronabinol, which is also known as Marinol. It's only THC. And just to give you a little bit of perspective, the Marinol doses are 2.5 milligrams, 5 milligrams, and 10 milligrams. So that Marinol, the biggest capsule, is going to be equivalent to a medical edible of 10 milligrams. And it is approved for anorexia in people with HIV and AIDS or refractory nausea and vomiting in people getting chemo. Navalone or Cezamet is one milligram capsules, and it's a different cannabinoid. It's also a C3, a control drug, as is uh, dronabinol, marinol is C3. And then there's um, cannabidiol is also legal it's a C5 known as Epidiolex. It's an oral solution and it's just CBD. It's approved for treatment resistant seizures, certain ones in, in children. Um, its oral solution is 100 milligrams per milliliter and the dose is 5 to 20 milligrams per kilogram twice a day. So it's pretty big doses. And then in the UK and other countries, but not the United States at this point, uh, Sativex or Nabiximol is an oral mucosal spray that is a 50-50 mixture of THC and CBD. And it's approved for use in spasticity and multiple sclerosis. Those are the ones that are pharmaceutical grade. And so it's not like we've been deprived of these 
compounds, they've been available in pharmaceutical forms for, for quite a while. You know, some of my colleagues are, you know, worried that maybe CBD has some addictive properties. I I don't know about that. You know, it can be broken down into Delta 9 and Delta 8 THC, but I don't think it's a really major pathway of breakdown. Um, if you're really taking pure CBD, it's not going to be detected on a drug screen for THC. However, if you're working in a safety-sensitive job, such as a flight attendant or a pilot or you know, a physician or somebody that's getting drug tested and you think you're taking CBD, often people will come up positive for THC because the, the compounds that they're taking are not really pure CBD. There was this really interesting, uh, unpublished, unfortunately, study done by the uh, Utah Department of Agriculture several years ago when CBD started to become available. Uh, it, it wasn't really legal, but it wasn't being, nobody was going after uh, the sellers or the buyers of it. And they tested uh, cannabidiol samples from different parts of the state and found that it was everything from olive oil with nothing in it, no THC, no CBD, no nothing, to compounds that, components um, that contain fentanyl even. So you can pretty much, you really don't know what you're getting. So it's buyer beware. And you can have a very rude awakening if you're in a safety sensitive job and you're using what's supposedly CBD. That's so disturbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I would agree because I would frequently have patients and not as recently because now they're just most of them have just switched to using just cannabis. But probably I would say that probably fits that timeline. It was probably three or four years ago mm -hmm. that they would test positive for THC on their drug screen. And they would insist to me that they were only using CBD oil that, you know, they're buying just at the gas station. Right. And I said, well, you're testing positive for this and, you know, you're currently in an addiction treatment program. And so we need to talk about this. But it's really interesting. It's really interesting that you bring yeah, that up. The quality control at the gas stations is not really that good. So um, <laughs> I, I don't usually go buy my medications or herbal preparations or anything like that at the gas station. <laughs> that is a good retort. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, um, and there's some adverse effects you can get from CBD. It does a lot of things differently from THC. So it can cause somnolence and decreased appetite, fatigue, rash, insomnia, sleep problems, other than insomnia. And you can end up with suicidal ideation is, is one potential adverse effect. So even CBD, which may be of all the compounds we've talked about, maybe the potentially most beneficial in mental health settings could still be risky. There's also a risk of transaminase elevations, especially when you get up to that like 20 milligrams per kilogram twice a day level with Epidiolex, for example. There have been some contradictory studies, uh, some showing conflicting results that some said, yes, it causes hepatocellular injury, others saying no. If you look at the FDA package insert for cannabidiol or epidiolic, it says that hepatocellular injury is, is a potential warning or precaution. ALT elevations greater than three times the upper limit of normal were reported in 17% of patients taking 20 milligrams per kilogram per day. And if you were taking a lower dose, it was only 1%. So there is some sort of a dose-related risk. I there. mean, that's just, as a family physician, and Paula said earlier, they're not reporting to us anymore their use because they 
they just, they don't think they need to. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's another thing to watch out for. So like I said, nothing is harmless. There's also a lot of cannabinoid drug interactions. There's even a website, Penn State University, I believe, that has a list of potential cannabinoid and drug interactions. And, And when I say drug, I mean like pharmaceutical drug. So that's something to be aware of for for patients, but also especially for us who are treating people. And like you said, we really don't know what they're using. So we don't know what to look for in interaction. And that is a wrap on part one on cannabis by Dr. Elizabeth Howe. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for our next episode on cannabis use disorders with Dr. Howe. Thank you so much, Beth. That was a fantastic episode. Just a brief summary. So we have talked about cannabis. Lifetime prevalence is 42 to 46 percent. Endogenous cannabinoids are endanamide and 2-AG, and they bind to, to CB1 and CB2 receptors, which are throughout the brain and nervous system. Okay, and what do we know? What are some of the perceived benefits and what are the risks? What Beth has shared with us is some of the conclusive or substantial evidence. There is possibly some reduction in chronic neuropathic pain, an antiemetic for chemo-induced nausea or vomiting, and some reduction in MS spasticity symptoms. Possibly some moderate evidence showing some possibly some benefit for fibromyalgia and MS again. Limited evidence showing any help with increased appetite and decreased weight loss associated with HIV AIDS, decreasing symptoms of Tourette syndrome. There's limited evidence when it comes to benefit and mental health disorders such as an anxiety, PTSD, little or no evidence in treatment for cancer-associated anorexia, cachexia, symptoms of IBS, epilepsy, dystonia, and outcomes of individuals with schizophrenia. Definitely that brings us into some of the associated risks. Conclusive or substantial evidence shows increased respiratory symptoms and chronic bronchitis episodes and increased motor vehicle crashes, increased lower birth weight of offspring. Moderate evidence supports increased overdose injuries, including respiratory distress among pediatric populations. The mental health risks show increased schizophrenia from five to seven times increased risk and other psychosis with highest risk among frequent and heavy users. And there's moderate evidence showing impairment in learning, memory, and attention, increased bipolar and depression symptoms, increased suicidality with higher incidence among heavy users and increasing risk among teens, increased social anxiety disorder, and increased negative symptoms of schizophrenia. All right, that should do it. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com.
that the podcasts are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.